If you want to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 11 through 18. Let me get there as well. That might be helpful. All right. As Katie said, um, Kev Dog is sick, which is unfortunate. Really hope he starts to feel better. But with that in light, I am here. So, <clears throat> and for those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris. I'm one of the college interns. I moved here in August. You see me around. I basically live at this building now. So, but okay, cool. So, it's actually great that we sung those songs this morning because we talk so much about love in the church, which is wonderful and great, but we talk about it all the time, like the love of God, the love of people, how we ought to love our neighbors, loving the unloved, and those are all extremely foundational, like major scriptural truths, absolutely. But we also talk about it in a different way. We talk about how our loves are disordered, how we love things we ought not to love, like a particular sin that has power over us, which the only reason why it has power over us is because we love it. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I know I hadn't until I saw it in the American Gospel, the pastor talking about it. But if you really think about it, truly the only reason why sin continues to have power over us in our lives is because we love it more than God at that moment. It's because we continuously, like, Put it above where God ought to be. It is our primary love at that moment. And you continually go, you don't go back to things you don't love. You don't continuously like enslave yourself to things you don't love. And there's a tension there for us because we hate it, but we love it at the same time. And that's a big struggle for us. And there's actually a really, really good book that we have to read for our internship called You Are What You Love, which is kind of like a play on the words of like you are what you eat. But it's basically like what you worship, you become. And so, like that sin that you might love more than God, you will become just like that sin. I mean, heck, even the Bible even says that, like those who make the idols will become like them. And so, why do we spend so much time talking about it? Why do we think about it so much? Some would say it's because we've grown up in a really mushy and weak culture that we just want to talk about these soft and weak and tender emotions. I don't think that's necessarily true, not in the church at least, because focusing on love is not mushy or weak. Like, that is at the very core of who God is. God's greatest power is displayed not through his wrath on us, but on his love displayed in his son bearing the wrath on the cross. The focus is his love and wrath combined, but that is the main focus. And some would say it's because we've been fed this surface-level stuff of the Bible our whole lives. And... In some places, that's extremely true. Like, all they want to talk about is John 3.16, and it's an incredible and important verse, but if that's all you focus on, you miss the point of everything else. And so there is some validity to that. But ultimately, it's wrong because God's love's not shallow. It's one of the deepest things we can study in Scripture. Like, it's at the very core of who He is. It's one of the most central parts of the Bible and the Gospel. I mean, we look at John 3.16, why did He send His Son? Because he loved us. Not because of anything else. Like he wanted to glorify himself through his love for us and the world. And so the reason why we focus and should focus so much on love is because it's foundation not only to our faith, but who God is at his core. Unlike his wrath, which had a like actual temporal beginning when sin was brought into the world. Love didn't have that. Like from the like essence of God in the Trinity, 
love has existed for all eternity. Like, within the Godhead, each member loving each member fully, perfectly, and wholly. Because wrath, like, wrath had a starting moment when sin was brought into the world. Wrath was always a possibility because of God's holiness. But it was never actualized until we brought sin in. Love was not like that. Love stayed, and love has always been and always will be. And so, when God comes in the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, the core of us is changed. Before, it was a heart of stone changed into a heart of flesh, and now it is like love living in us. Like, it is foundational to who we are as Christians is to love and to love others and to love God. I mean, John Piper's famous quote, like, God, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Like, he is our greatest love, and his, that greatest love fulfills us. Because without faith and love, even obedience is idolatry. Like, if we, if we don't love God and have faith in him, even the things that we do that think we, that will please him is just us calling our good works. Like, it's just us putting filthy rags before the Lord and calling them good works. That's all it is. It's, it's idolatry of ourselves if, without faith and love. I mean, even if, like, you're talking about loving your neighbor... Like, if you go help an old lady across the street, but you're just doing it so, like, the girl you like on the side of the road will see you do it, you're not helping her. You're helping yourself. But with that being said, in 1 John 3, it tells us that we ought to love one another in an unworldly way, in an otherworldly way, because we have come to know love personally in Jesus Christ. And so, if you'll read with me uh, 1 John 3, 11 through 18 which says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that there, there is no murderer that has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father of mercy and grace, you sit enthroned in the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for your holy and perfect word. We come before you today desiring that to know you more and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Take our eyes and our hearts off of ourselves and our circumstances and place them completely on you, transfixed by your glory and power. Remove distractions from our minds and this space so that we may lean into the truth of your word. Allow your Holy Spirit to change us, awaken us, and give us power to understand, love, and obey all that your word has for us, no matter what it might cost. Show us our neediness for you. Give me the grace and the power that I need to be faithful and Cause all that I say that is correct and helpful to be remembered and all that I say that is unhelpful to be forgotten. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So a little bit of background on the text. 
Um, it was written by John the Apostle in around 80 to 90 AD, which is around the beginning of Gnosticism. If you don't know what that is, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it's kind of important because it's a, one of the first or one of the many letters that John writes. But this one is extremely pastoral, and it's written to a bunch of early Christians who are really like, needing help because they're being led astray. They're like loving false idols. And one of these things might be Gnosticism. And if you're not a nerd, unlike me, you, um, you might not know what Gnosticism is. It's basically just this secret knowledge. It's a lot like modern-day Scientology that you like. You get the secret knowledge, and you get to heaven, or that kind of deal. It's not that important, because it's not obvious in the text anyway, and we have no clue of knowing whether that was actually the point that he was writing for. But he also doesn't write in like a super noticeable pattern. He kind of seems sporadic, but it's purposeful, because it's like he weaves all of these main themes together, which are like sound doctrine, living in obedience, true devotion to God, and love is a big one that overarches the whole thing. And on top of that, a lot of this is just the implications of what Jesus has done in the gospel. It's just implications of how that makes its outworking out into our lives and how we receive it and how we talk about it. But with that in mind, there's two points that I want to like split this up into, and that is hatred shown in verses 11 through 13 and then love known in verses 14 through 18. And so in verses 11 through 15, we see hatred shown. And we see that we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And so that is not just saying that like the very foundation of the faith, the very thing, one of the first things you're ever taught is to love one another as a Christian. And not only that, like to love God. That is, a very, that is one of the foundational truths of what being a Christian is. But he's talking about more than just the beginning of our faith. He's talking about from the beginning of time when love started showing itself in creation. I mean, he's, he's echoing himself from chapter 1 in verse 1 where he says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. And then in chapter seven, or in verse 7 of chapter 1, he said, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And so we see that here love is not only a taught from the beginning, but it's hearkening back to the very beginning of creation because that's where love started to show itself. That's how we began to experience God's love because he created everything around us and created us out of wanting to glorify himself and wanting to love us. Not that he needed to, not that he was lonely. He's fully sufficient in and of himself, but he's merciful and gracious to create creatures that he could love. And so we see this in verse 12, where he hops back to Genesis 4, one of the very earliest texts of the Bible. And he tells them that we shouldn't be like Cain, the evil one, who's of the evil one, the devil. And it's like, well, thanks. I didn't think I needed to be like the dude who killed his brother, but I appreciate it. Um, but it's important to notice the order here, too, because he said we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He does not say the one who murdered his brother and who was of the evil one. That order there is very purposeful. Because the reason why he killed his brother was like he didn't become of the evil one because he killed his brother. Like sin was brought in in chapter 3. He was already of the evil one by pure nature. And that's why he killed his brother. Like he was of, the, he didn't 
become of the evil one because he killed his brother. He was of the evil one and therefore killed his brother. And so if you've been coming to night church, you've seen Pastor Brian preach through Genesis and you've seen this massive overarching story between the serpent of the, or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's again playing its way out here. Um, but now some of you see that you might not know Cain and Abel. Like if you're like me, you might not have been raised in the church. You might not have any clue who these people are. With that in mind, I'm going to read it for us, which it is. <clears throat> and Abel brought his firstborn of his flock and the fattened portion. Oh, no, I need uh, one more. In the course of time, Cain brought before the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do know, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first murder ever recorded in the Bible, and it's about religion. Because religion cuts to the very core of who we are. It's the thing that gets us riled up the most. So, religious violence has been going on since the dawn of time. And it won't stop until Christ comes back. That's why this love we talk about is so crucial. Because it's the only thing that changes things. But, we see that. And you might be wondering, why in the world did God have regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's? I mean, first and obviously... Cain seems to not have faith in God. We can see that in a couple of reasons. Because first, he doesn't bring him the best of what he has. He, and I mean, that's just plain and simple. But you see Abel bringing the firstborn and the fat portions. I mean, he's given him the best that he has. Cain doesn't do that. He just gives him, he's like, man, eh, you can have those fruits. And then the second reason is, and this has been established since God covered sin, when sin entered the world by killing something to cover up their sin, was there was no blood in the fruit. There was blood in the, in the firstborn lamb and in the fat portions. Like, so from the very beginning, he's establishing, like, in order to be made right with me, blood must be shed. From the very beginning that sin is brought into the world. And that hasn't changed. I mean, this is the fulfilling arc of Scripture, that Christ is coming to shed his blood for us. And so we see that in verse 12. But let's get back to our text. So John tells us that we ought not be like Cain of the devil who killed his brother. And then at first glance, it seems to take a weird bit of shift in verse 13, where he then says, don't be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. After just talking about like way long ago in history about Cain and Abel, and then jumps to modern day, he's like, don't be surprised the world hates you. That might feel like a weird thing. Like what does Cain and Abel have to do with the world? It's because he's using it as an analogy for believers versus the world. Like, from the very beginning of the time, the people who don't believe in God are angry with the people of God. And it's not because of who the people of God are. Like, in and of themselves, they're just as wicked and sinful as everyone else. But it's because of who they represent. The king of the world who has authority over everything they do. And who wants them to live in a manner that they don't want to live in. Because they love their sin. 
But, and again, the world doesn't hate Christianity because of us. It, hate, it hates Christianity because of who Christ is and Christ's righteousness in us. And Christ told us this. He said, because they hated me, they will hate you. And then, he even, and then John even alludes to this in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we know the reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Like we are always interconnected with Christ at every single moment of our lives. And it even affects the relationships we have with people who don't know him and affects how they look at us too. And so that's why Cain killed Abel. And it says it here because we know that Oh, backing up. <laughs> because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He knew there was something different between them two. He knew what he was doing was unrighteous. And he was mad that someone else got it right. He was mad that someone else received mercy. He was mad that someone else, like, was loved by God. He was jealous. He was envious. And it says, do not be surprised that the world hates you. And it's also important to notice there, guys. It does not say if. It says that. And now, if you're sitting here and you might not believe it, you might be like, dude, I don't hate you people. And I agree, if the way you're probably thinking about hate, you probably don't. You're not coming in here trying to beat my head in with a hammer. I thank you for that. But if you really think about it, think about the sin you love the most in the world, and then think how you would respond if Christ took it from you. I mean, we, but if we're honest with ourselves, that's the same way we continue to hate God even our, in our redeemed state. We hate that God is holy and he has final authority over us. We hate him because he hates sin and because we love sin. And so, if we're being honest, we, we do it in the same way. And so, the reason we so often hate God is because we love our sins and death. This is something John is constantly contrasting in the book between light and dark, death and life, love and hatred. And then we see this in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, which say, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... And he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so we see that, and it is hard to hear. Like, it doesn't feel good to hear like, yeah, you're going to be hated. People are not going to like you. That's not a fun thing to deal with. But at the end of the day, like I said, like Christ's love is sufficient. And that's why we love one another. And like the classic example of the long infinite rope with the tiny little red tape on it, like that affliction is momentary. And that love, that eternal love that existed before in the Trinity and will continue to exist, it will be the love that we abide in for the rest of eternity after that little tape. And we can still abide in it now. But then we see it take a shift in verses, four, in verses 14 through 18, which is the second point. 
it's love known. And so we see that we have some hope of assurance in this verse because it says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. And so, but that sounds weird when you really think about it. Like, why would my love for someone other than God reflect whether I really know him or not? Like, that seems strange. But you can figure that out real quick. Just take a look around the church. People here are hard to love. People here, like, that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't think like you, that disagree with you on politics, and even some on theology. The church is hard to love. And so, best believe it, the only reason why you love the people you're sitting around right now is because Christ first loved you. Like, I can tell you there's plenty of people in this building that if it wasn't for the Lord, I probably would never talk to them a day in my life because they don't look like me, they don't talk like me, they don't have the same interests as me. And so apart from him, I would just be lollygagging along with a bunch of people that look just like me. But that's not God's mission. And here at Lakeview, we know that well, that the people who don't look like us are the ones we're going to be worshiping next to as well. And so John continues this line in thought by saying that those who do not love the people of God abide in death. He says that, Whoever does not love abides in death. Abides, like, has the, carries the idea of, like, sticking and staying. And he also uses the word to abide of talking about the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so those, those ideas are very strongly connected. And so, and a big part of this is, is because you cannot abide in the God who is love and then hate those who Christ loves. That is just impossible to do. It's impossible. And then if you weren't already taking him really seriously, you jump to verse 15 where he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I was talking to my friend Bo yesterday. Bo's about an 89-year-old man. Uh, he's my grandma's boyfriend, actually, fun little fact. But um, good old duck duck. Um, but uh, I was talking with him, and I was telling him about the text, and he was like, well, that seems kind of harsh. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> that's not easy language, and that's on purpose. It's just like, I mean, think about like cancer, like the smallest little cancer cell. It might not kill you right then, but it's the same thing that grows into a massive tumor that will ruin your life. Sin's the same way. Hatred's the same way. It might start off small. Like it might be a cute little baby, little tiger, little kitten, but you let that thing grow, it will maul you and kill you. There will be blood spatter everywhere. Okay, like, don't play around with it. It will grow, and it will hurt you and everyone around you. And so, and then he's also reiterating what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he said, I say to you that everyone who, or everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And once again, we see that word abide in the next verse. Whoever d does not love abides in death. And who, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that there, it, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Eternal life abiding in you, that is the Holy Spirit abiding in you. That he's the source of our eternal life. He's the down payment of our inheritance. 
Like he is the very thing that abides in us and gives us the capability to, to even think about loving one another. And that's a constant theme throughout Scripture. Like what God is after is not your begrudging submission. He's after your heart. It's what he wants. Because that's the core of who you are, is where your heart is. Your actions can be fake and phony. Your heart will always show true. Um, and so then in verse 16, this is beautiful. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He tells us that we can know God, except he doesn't say God, he says love. This is one of the few places in Scripture where love is actually personified as the man Christ Jesus. You can think about 1 Corinthians 13, and then you can think about literally like a few verses later in this same book where he says, like, plainly, God is love. He doesn't create it. He doesn't make it. He doesn't give it. He is it. And so, if God were to cease to be loving, he would cease to be God. Like, it is inseparable from who he is. If he does not love, he is not the true God of the world. And therefore, if you do not love, you're not truly his. And then we see, he said, and then he's repeating, by this we know. He's used that in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, 16, chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. This is a constant thing pushed through the letter is like giving Christians the ability to discern where their heart is and giving you a litmus test like, do you truly love God? Are you truly of his people? Do you truly know him? Have you experienced him? But here he's reminding us, we don't have to search for love, y'all. True love has already come in Christ Jesus. Like, it's not a thing we have to go out and look for, like all these romantic movies, which are really sweet and awesome. Like, they're awesome. They're great. But, like, the true love that a lot of people are looking for will not be fulfilled in a spouse, will not be fulfilled in a boyfriend, will not be fulfilled in school. The true love that your heart needs is the God of the universe. That Because whatever expectations you put on the rest of that person, they will fall short every time, and it will wreck you and them because they can't hold those expectations, and you're going to get disappointed because they can't do them. They're not God. You can't expect them to be that way. And then he says that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And just a little side note on like biblical love. This is not this love that just affirms everything you want and like give me whatever I want, tell me nice things, don't tell me bad things. I know this is Christ-like love. This is biblical love. It calls out wrongdoing. Lovingly, in speaking truth and love, but it calls it out. But more than anything, biblical love sticks. It's not wishy-washy. Like, it's not, I love you today, I hate you tomorrow. It is unconditional love. It is love that will stick around and stay around. So that's love we're called to. Like, even in the church, when someone hurts you, you love them. You care for them. You go out of your way. They are your brother and your sister. That is their fundamental relationship to you. Not someone that hurts you, 
but a family member of yours and mine. That's how we love one another. That's how the world can be, that's how we can be known by his love, as Christ says. That's how we know. That's how we can be known. And then he, he goes a little further. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Because godly love, godly orientation, is not just empty words. It is action. Like, worldly love will just speak nice things to you and then treat you like crap the rest of the time. Biblical love does not do that. Biblical love says what they mean and means what they say. When they say they love you, that means they will lay down their life for you. That means they will hold the door for you. That means they will, like, take getting bit on the arm from you because you've had a hard day. Because that's what Christ did for us. I mean, his whole life was in service to God and others. There was not a moment of his day that was not filled interceding for us or living obedient on behalf of us. That is the core of what he was doing, was glorifying God and loving us. Because he was the ultimate man. He was the ultimate human. And, then he, but, and he asked a hard question. How does God's love abide in him? And that's a question for us. Like, think about the people around you. Think about the people you struggle to love. Like, and then think about what Christ did for them. Think about how Christ looks at them. Think, think about what they will be like in glory. And this is a side note. I think this was from a book um, by Timothy Keller talking about spouses. Like, when you're married, I know there's not many of you. All you will be one day. Um, well, not all of you. I don't know. That's up to him. Um, but, but anyway, he, he says, like, there's always this, like, idea in our culture that you're looking for the one, the better one, the one that fits you better, that you're discontent in your marriage. And he says, y'all, that's crazy, because the better one is your spouse glorified. The better one is the one that the Lord is making them into be through y'all's relationship. Now, that is beautiful. Not this searching out for something else, but like you see that in them. You see the spirit in them, and so you work through them to get them to that point. You don't give up on them because you're like, oh, man, I don't want to do this work. No. That's what we do for one another, too. Like, you, if you struggle with somebody, man, like, that ought to be the person on the top of your prayer list. That ought to be the person you go out of your way to say kind things to. Because it is really, really hard to hate and have anger, bitterness towards someone. If you're constantly praying for them, checking in on them, seeing what you can do to help them, like, the Holy Spirit won't let you stay that way if you're a Christian. Um, and so, God's love does not abide of us if our so-called love does not lead to action. True love leads to action, and that's why Christ came. And then he exhorts and encourages us by saying, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And so, I mean, I can't think of a better way to end it for y'all and for me. Brothers, sisters, Lakeview, church family, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth.